Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Sydney, and uh, good answers, kids. Good job. Uh, once again, no children's church today because it's Communion Sunday, so uh, kids remain in the sanctuary. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Mark this morning. Uh, I'm afraid this is not going to be the easiest sermon for the kids to follow um, as we consider our topic of eschatology, but um, it's all in God's providence. Mark 13 is our text today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please look for one underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Blue paperback Bible, white paperback Bible should be there for you. Um, There have been over uh, the centuries actually many, many (coughs) predictions about the coming of the Antichrist. Back in the 7th century, people in the church thought it was Muhammad. In the 13th century, people thought the Antichrist was Genghis Khan. In the 16th century, during the Reformation, some of the Protestants thought the Pope was the Antichrist, but some of the Catholics thought Martin Luther was the Antichrist. In the 20th century, there was kind of an explosion of predictions of the Antichrist. People thought it was Adolf Hitler. Some thought it was Joseph Stalin. Some thought it was John F. Kennedy. Uh, You might recall that some thought it was Mikhail Gorbachev, leader of the USSR. Some even thought it was Ronald Reagan. Jesus' coming has also received various predictions over the years. Martin Luther said Jesus was going to come in 1636. Christopher Columbus said Jesus was going to come in 1656. John Wesley said Jesus was going to come in 1836. Maybe you remember a guy named Harold Camping. Harold Camping said Jesus was coming in 1994. Of course, he was wrong. Didn't learn his lesson and predicted that he was coming in 2011 and was also wrong. How easy it is to get it wrong when we make predictions about the future. How easy it is to go astray when we start to try to unpack what God has predicted about the future. As we think about the future, what we're talking about is this topic called eschatology. And so that's why these sermons are named Jesus and the Future. Last week we began this study of Mark chapter 13. And what we learned last week as we looked at the first 13 verses is that many of us have been wrong in our understanding of this chapter. As we've looked at the details that were given to us here in these first 13 verses about the coming of false prophets, the coming of false messiahs, the wars and rumors of wars and famines and and earthquakes and the gospel being preached to all the world, Many of us, myself included, have always taken those to be signs of the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus. But what I argued last week is that if we carefully consider the context of this passage, that it leads us to a very different interpretation. And so apparently uh, it is common when it comes to eschatological issues to, to get it wrong. So let me just review where we were last week, you might remember that the disciples asked Jesus a question. 
And the question was, when will the temple be destroyed? Because Jesus had just announced that it was going to come down. And so the disciples asked, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And so this chapter goes on with Jesus' answer to that question. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus' answer to this question, when is the temple coming down, mentioned many different signs. All the ones I just mentioned to you, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, etc., But if you look at verse 7 in chapter 13, notice that Jesus says that the end is not yet. When you see these things happen, the end is not yet. In other words, these are not signs of the end. These are non-signs. These are things that happen on a regular, ongoing basis in a fallen world. So don't be alarmed. He said don't panic when you see bad things happen in, in this world. And so that's a very different interpretation, (laughs) very different understanding of this particular passage. And so what we're doing here is going through chapter 13 a little bit at a time. I've got it on the screen here, Jesus in the Future Part 2. This is basically one sermon in three parts as we go through this entire chapter because the entire chapter is looking to Jesus in the future. But I think the challenge for us all is to ask the question, are we willing to revise our opinions of what Scripture says if we are convinced that it teaches something different than what we've always believed? That's a question every Christian should ask. Can I get to the point where I will say, you know what, all these things I've believed for so many years, actually I think I've been wrong. And Scripture teaches something different. And so my responsibility now is to humble myself before the authority of the Scriptures and revise my opinion. Are you, are you ready to do that? Are you able to do that? That's important for us always to be ready to do. Um, so I think this three-part sermon series, Jesus in the Future, actually is an exercise in challenging uh, us in our willingness to do that. So let's go ahead and read the next few verses as we continue. If you're able to stand, please do so. I've been dealing with a cold, a cold here the last few days, so... I'm going to trust God to sustain my voice, Uh, but it might sound a little weak, so my apologies for that. But Mark 13, we're going to pick up here in verse 14 where we left off last week. All right? Jesus says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, 
and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word and give us understanding into this difficult passage of scripture. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as I like to say, you know, one of the things we do here at New Life is that we like to work our way through books of the Bible and just pick up where we left off last time. There's a lot of advantages to that. Uh, one of the challenges of that is that you've got to preach on whatever comes up next. And so I, I wouldn't say that chapter 13 would be a passage that I would necessarily have chosen to preach on, but um, 13 comes after 12. So that's why we're looking at this, this chapter. Uh, it, it's a, a chapter that has caused a lot of confusion and difficulty for um, a lot of people. And so I, I would like to say, you know, first of all, I, I think you know, I'm going to hold to my convictions somewhat loosely on a chapter like this, knowing that there are so many disagreements about it. But uh, I am going to proclaim to you today what is my settled conviction about the meaning of, of this passage. So really just two points here today. <clears throat> I think we can understand this pretty well if we just think of it uh, in two ways. Uh, the first is that Jesus is predicting here an immediate local event. Okay? That's, that's the first thing to understand about what's happening. In verses 14 to 23, <clears throat> Jesus is predicting an immediate local event. So let me tell you what, what I mean by that. So again, going back to the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus has product, uh, predicted the, the destruction of the temple. That was in verses 1 and 2. Verse 2, he says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This magnificent structure, the temple in Jerusalem, is going to come down. I said last week, that actually happened. It's a historical fact. What Jesus said would happen did happen. About 40 years after this prediction, in the year A.D. 70, so when I say A.D. 70, that just means 70 years after the birth of Jesus, roughly. You know, we're in 2023. Now, this is 2023 years after the birth of Jesus. 80, 70, 70 years. That's a long, long time ago. But we know, historically speaking, it is a fact that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. So what Jesus is predicting here in verse 2 actually happened. Roman army came in, led by the emperor Titus, and destroyed the city. Well, when the disciples heard this, they were startled, of course, and so they had a question. <clears throat> and we see their question in verse 4. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? So that's the first part of the question. And that's what we dealt with last week, the question of when. When will this happen? And Jesus' answer, again, was a little bit of a non-answer, kind of. He just gave all these signs and said that none of these indicate when this is actually going to happen. So he was trying to encourage them. Don't be alarmed when you see all of these catastrophic things happen. But the second part of the disciples' question is, what will be the sign? Do you see that in verse 4? What will be the sign? Notice the word sign there is singular. Not what are the signs. We often think of the signs of the times, plural. What they're asking for is a sign. What is the singular one sign that is going to be an indicator 
that this temple is coming down. All these other things, when you see false prophets, when you see earthquakes and famines, that's not when the temple's coming down, is what Jesus is saying. Don't be alarmed by those things. But what will happen? There's going to be one thing that's going to happen that's going to be an indicator of this and should alert you, disciples, that the temple's about to come down. And the answer is in verse 14. So verse 14, we're moving from the when, which is up to verse 13, and we're beginning now in verse 14 with the what. And what Jesus says here is when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. So he's speaking of this thing called the abomination of desolation. It's, it's, uh, it's standing, so some people think it must be a person, although I guess a statue could, could also be considered to be standing. It's in a place where it ought not to be, which would be the temple. Uh, let the reader understand, um, you know, if you have a red-letter edition, that's probably in red, would suggest that Jesus said it. I think this is probably Mark's insertion. Let the reader understand. Jesus speaking here is not necessarily thinking of readers, but Mark is writing the book. He is thinking of readers. But what he actually means by that, I'm not sure. Let the reader understand. Could be a number of things. But what Jesus says is when you see this abomination of desolation, then run for the hills. That's what he says. Flee to the mountains. Now, the obvious question, though, is what is the abomination of desolation? What is it that Jesus is referring to here? Like I said, it could be a person, it could be a statue, it could be an event. Uh, but this language is taken from <clears throat> verses in the book of Daniel. And uh, we're not going to look at them in any detail here, but you can write this down. Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. All, mentions the, all mention the abomination of desolation. And this, this simply refers to an event that is so scandalous, so sacrilegious, so outrageous that it could be called an abomination that would, I think we could say an abomination that would lead to a desolation, a, an activity of desolation, which could refer to the destruction of the temple the abomination of desolation. So it was an example of this. Uh, years after that was written in the book of Daniel, <clears throat> there is uh, recorded for us the story of a guy named Epiphanes, who was a Syrian general. And in 168 BC, he came into Jerusalem, entered into the temple, erected his own altar there in the temple, made it an altar to Zeus, a false god, not worshipped by the Jews, and then sacrificed on it a swine. You can imagine how offensive, how outrageous, how scandalous that would have been to the typical Jewish person. And so that, that's probably the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in, in Daniel. And here Jesus is borrowing that same language and saying there's another kind of abomination of desolation that is coming. So the incident that I just mentioned can't be the sign of the destruction of the temple because it happened 200 years earlier, right? Those who lived during the time of Epiphanes would not even be alive when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So that's not the sign. But there are other things that have 
happened during that time, roughly in the general neighborhood of A.D. 70. You had a guy named Caligula who came into the temple or was threatening anyway to do some things in the temple. Um, Pontius Pilate um, did some things that would have been considered very outrageous. There was a group called the Zealots, these overzealous uh, Jews who came into the temple and desecrated it in various ways. That might be the best option because it's the closest to uh, A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Whatever the thing is, it has to be close enough to the destruction of Jerusalem that these words would have been intelligible as indicating that the disciples need to leave right now. When this happens, flee for the mountains now because the place is about to come down. So lots of different views about what this actually is, but again, it is some kind of gross defilement of God's holy place that immediately precedes the destruction of the temple. Not sure what it is, but we assume that the disciples did know and they knew what, what to look out for. Um, so <clears throat> remember the directions last week, as I've already repeated here, when Jesus was speaking of the famines and the earthquakes and various signs, his um, exhortation was, don't be alarmed. But now you see that it's very different. It's a, it's a big contrast, right? Last time it was, don't be alarmed. Now it is, be alarmed. <laughs> be alarmed. Get, get, it's time to go. And so we see various examples of, of what he means by this. In verse 15, he says, you know, if you're up on your housetop, uh, don't even bother to go down into your house. Don't take any of your stuff out. You've got to leave your stuff behind. It's time to go. You've got to get out. Um, <clears throat> verse 16, if you're out in the field working, don't even stop to get your coat. might be cold out, but no, don't delay. Get out. Get out of the city. And he goes on to say, let's just hope this doesn't happen. Pray that this doesn't happen in winter. That's just going to make it more difficult. Verse 17, uh, for women who are pregnant, for those with newborns, infants, I mean, it's going to be even harder for them. Um, this event coming is just a horrible, atrocious event, the destruction of Jerusalem. Nothing like it before or after is what Jesus says in verse 19. There'll be such tribulation is not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, nor will there ever be. So I don't think we want to hold Jesus quite so literally on these words. This is just a way of saying that this is going to be an unprecedented, striking, horrible, awful event. Of course, we know from historical reports about a million Jews died when Titus brought in his armies and destroyed Jerusalem. About 600,000 Jews died just from the famine alone. And some of them were just outright slaughtered. Thousands of people slaughtered in Jerusalem by Titus's armies. Well, Jesus goes on. And he says, you know, thankfully, God is merciful. And um, he, he cut short the days. I, I think it was about five months. So it could have been longer. It, it could have been worse, verse 20 tells us. God had mercy and shut uh, shorten the days of this conflict. But, but he concludes this passage by just giving a warning, which he gave actually last week too. He says in verse 21, be careful because there are going to be false prophets. Um, as often is the case in a time of crisis, there are people who rise up and they claim to know the way forward. And so it's a good opportunity for manipulators to come along and call people to themselves. Uh, they are going to perform various signs of wonders and verse 22 says they're going to be so convincing that they would lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 
those that God has chosen, those that God is committed to. Now, notice that phrase, lead astray, if possible. Implication is, thankfully, that that's not possible for the elect. The elect ultimately and finally will not be persuaded or deceived by false prophets and false saviors. So, um, <clears throat> that, that's, that, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's predicting an immediate local event. What I, what I just want you to see here is not one thing has been said in this chapter all the way up through verse 13 about the second coming of Jesus. Not one thing. It's not been referenced. These first 13 verses are not about the second coming of Christ. <laughs> I know I said that last week, but it's just, I think, a, a surprising thing. He's referencing a local event, right? He's speaking to his disciples. He's talking about people who live in Judea. He's talking about people who are on the housetops at that time, people who are working in fields at that time. He's talking about something that's going to happen in their lifetime. It's going to happen to them. He's not talking about something that's going to happen in our lifetime. The context, I think, naturally leads us to this conclusion. Now, I do think we can draw a conclusion from this, however. I mean, a, a, a principle. We can draw a principle from this, and it's this, that God's patience with His people is not unlimited, and that when His people decide that they are going to live in rebellion against Him, and that they're going to conform to the ways of the world, and that they're going to resist His ways, and they're going to rationalize and embrace all kinds of immorality... And in this current day, when the church departs from the gospel and decides not to call people to repentance and not to proclaim salvation in Jesus and to rationalize and twist and interpret the Scripture in all sorts of different ways to entitle them to continue in their rebellion against God, that the time comes when God says that's enough and He judges His people. I mean, it's pretty clear in 1 Peter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin with all of those unbelievers out in the world. It doesn't say that, does it? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's what's happening in the destruction of the temple. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, there is an implication for them, but it begins with the household of God. Friends, God will always preserve His elect. He always has a remnant. He never loses those who are His. I don't mean by this that a true believer in Christ will be cast into hell. That's not what I'm saying. But He judged the temple. He can judge the church when the church decides not to live in accordance with His ways. Thankfully, He preserves His remnant. But that's what we're seeing here so far, all the way up through verse 23. Jesus predicting an immediate local event, something that happened in 40 years. That's what I mean by immediate local event, destruction of Jerusalem. Second thing, the second part of this is Jesus also predicts a distant global event. Jesus predicts a distant global event. Here is the question. Here's what makes this chapter so difficult. The question is which parts of this chapter are about the temple and which parts of this chapter are about the second coming? That's the confusion. There are some who think all of chapter 13 is about the second coming. There are some who think all of chapter 13 is about the destruction of Jerusalem. But I, I would say it's, it's about both. 
And the disagreement is, when does it go from one to the other? What I'm going to argue here is that from verse 23 to 24, the topic shifts from the destruction of Jerusalem to the second coming of Jesus. There's a shift in topic from verses 23, verse 23 to verse 24. So let, let, let me tell you why I think that's true. Three reasons here why verses 24 to 27 is a new topic. Moving away from the destruction of Jerusalem. There's actually more than three, but I'm, I'm just going to give you three. First, the timing. Look at verse 24. Notice how it begins. But in those days after that tribulation. Now, the tribulation there mentioned is not the capital GT great tribulation that we think of happening at the end of the world and mentioned in Revelation 7:14. I don't think that's what's in mind here. This is a lower T tribulation. After that tribulation, he's referring to the tribulation of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That would certainly be, uh, would qualify as a tribulation, as I've described it, with the thousands of people uh, slaughtered and, and starving. That is a tribulation. Tribulation is something that Christians deal with throughout our lives. I don't think this is a reference to the great tribulation, but you can see very clearly in verse 24, after that time, after that tribulation. Now he's talking not about the destruction of Jerusalem, but about something later, okay? Timing, I think, is one reason to believe there is a shift in topic here. The second thing is the grammar being used here, the grammar. If you look carefully in the verses that lead up to verse 24, all the way up through verse 23, notice how Jesus is always speaking directly to his disciples. So verse 7, for instance, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation. Remember, this is all in response to the question the disciples ask. He's talking to the disciples. He's speaking to them, and he uses that pronoun, you. Verse 23, again, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, notice, though, in 26, verse 26, the change in pronoun. And then they will see the Son of Man coming. He's not talking to the disciples anymore. He's got a different group of people in mind. They, a different group after the tribulation, sometime later, sometime in the distant future. One other reason for this is the scope of what Jesus is addressing here. Um, so far, as I've argued, this has been a local event. It's been in Jerusalem. It's about people in Judea. It's about people on housetops and fields there. But now notice He's shifting to a, a more of a global event because look what he says in verse 27. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's not happening when the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. This is now a global event. This is talking about the return of Jesus Christ at the end of history where he will judge mankind and gather all of his people to himself people from every language, every tribe, and every nation. So now we see a very clear prediction about the second coming of Jesus. It's important to understand, friends, that the, the coming of Jesus, 
Um, if we think of it in Old Testament terms, looking forward to the coming of Messiah, what they probably didn't understand, certainly as well as we do, is that Jesus comes in two stages. He comes twice. He came once when he was born in a manger, Christmas, that was his first coming, but he's coming again on the clouds in power and glory as this passage is telling us. And um, J.C. Ryle, who I love to quote, he's just such a encouragement to me. J.C. Ryle just describes it this way, a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth reading. The second coming of Christ shall be utterly unlike the first. He came the first time in weakness, a tender infant, born to a poor woman, unnoticed, unhonored, scarcely known. He shall come a second time in royal dignity, with the armies of heaven to be known, recognized, and feared by all the tribes of the earth. He came the first time to suffer, to bear our sins, to be despised, rejected, and slain. He shall come the second time to reign, to put down every enemy beneath his feet, to take the kingdom of this world for his inheritance, to rule them with righteousness, to judge all men, and to live forevermore. That's what's being described here in verses 24 to 27. Jesus coming in victory, Jesus coming in power, Jesus coming in triumph. It's going to be quite something to behold. Now, what do we do uh, with the language here that is used? There's even more difficulty here because verses 24 and 25 talks about um, the moon not giving its light. Verse 24, verse 25, the stars falling from the heavens. Um, you know, is that literally what's going to happen? You're going to be outside one night, and you're going to look up, and a star is just going to come straight down and crash to earth. Is that, is that what this means? Stars falling out of the sky? Well, again, what's happening here is Jesus is borrowing language from the Old Testament. And if you look at Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 32, you will see all of these phrases that Jesus is using here used in those passages. And all of those passages were referring to the downfall of very strong and powerful nations at that time. And so it would seem what's happening here is that Jesus is using exalted language to describe drastic events on the world scene that are highly unusual but not necessarily that these things are going to happen literally, that we're going to see stars falling from the sky, as it says here. This is figurative language, exalted language to describe unusual events. Commentator R.T. France says, such cosmic language conveys a powerful symbolism of political changes within world history and is not naturally to be understood of a literal collapse of the universe at the end of the world. Just because R.T. France says it doesn't make it true, but um, I, I do think that he is correct. So what we take from this, friends, I, I think is just this. We, we know that the destruction of Jerusalem happened. Jesus said it was going to happen, and it did. And now Jesus says there's going to come this time when the Son of Man is going to come in the clouds with great power and great glory, and you better count on that happening too, because it's going to happen. It's happening. The question is whether you're ready when that happens. One last question you might be asking as you look at the end of this passage, these references to the elect. Um, verse 27, he's going to send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. And one of the questions that you might be asking is, am I among the elect? Am I chosen by God? Did he predestine me to salvation? 
Uh, well, that's a sermon in itself, but let me just address that question by saying this. What is not your responsibility, friends, is to decide who is elect and who is not. It's not your responsibility. Frankly, it's none of your business. It, it's God's business. God, God has decided that. That's not your responsibility. That's not your call. Figure out who did God predestine and who didn't he. Leave that to God. Here is your responsibility. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. That's what God calls you to do. And if you do that, you can have the assurance that you're among the elect. It's just that simple. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you cling to him for salvation? Do you acknowledge that your sin has offended God, but you've received what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, and that's your hope for eternal life? Then you're elect. Don't push it any further than that. The whole doctrine of election is intended for your comfort so that you will know that when Jesus comes again, he's coming for you. He's coming for me. Isn't that good to know that various people might forget about you? You know, I mean, people who love you, they're, they're, they, they might die before you. You might find yourself left alone in the world and you wonder, is anybody thinking of me? Am I forgotten in this world? No, you're not. If you are among the elect, you know that God is coming for you. When will that happen? I hope you have learned from this sermon that it would be unwise to even begin to try to figure that out. Don't bother figuring it out. We don't know when it's going to happen. Whatever theory you have, it's wrong, okay? Um, but what you do know is that you have time now. You have time now to get right with God. Confess your sins, repent, and believe in him and be ready when the Son of Man comes on the clouds in power and glory. Lord, thank you for this comforting direction from your word. Lord, would you please help us as we seek to understand difficult portions of your word? But one thing, again, we know is very sure, and that is that you are coming again for us. And so we are so grateful for that. Help us to take comfort in that, and may it encourage us to be faithful to you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.